Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 418. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 418 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy-nominated mastering engineer Dave Greenberg, who's worked with Switchfoot, Gone is Gone, The Shotgun Wedding Quintet, Salvation Jane, Mickey Hart, and many others. And Dave and I actually have a history together because we both worked at Boomtown, where I was a paid intern and Dave was one of the main engineers, along with the legendary Fred Catero, who unfortunately just passed. We're going to talk all about that. We're going to talk about Dave's journey, his uh, move from the Bay Area to Florida, and many, many things. So I'm really happy that he's here. Dave Greenberg coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about the love of audio. So I was listening to my friend and former WCA guest, Andrew Sheps, last night on his podcast. Andrew talks to awesome people. And I was listening to the uh, Alan Mulder interview and I was feeling rather giddy, I have to admit. I was listening to Alan talk about, you know, different different things he does and the different records he's worked on. And I would pause and I would go back and open up Apple Music and listen to the record he was talking about. And then I would pause that and go back to the interview and just kind of dissecting it and taking taking some notes. And and I was struck by how how I felt. I felt like even after almost 30 years of doing this, I felt like I feel like a little kid, like, you know, digging into one of my heroes work. And I thought, shouldn't I be jaded by this time? And I thought, no, not jaded. Love it too much. And it's just too much fun. It continues to be too much fun. It's amazing to me. And I don't know how you all feel. And if you get this from any of my interviews that I do with people or, you know, or people like Andrew and and my other friends out there, Lidge and and Warren doing their interviews with people. But, you know, when I listen to these people talk, I just get so excited about the process. And it's and it happens every time. And I don't know if that is a result of an open mindset of there's still possibilities out there, there's still excitement. Because I've definitely met some some jaded audio people in my time. And yeah, they kind of bum me out. But I continue to have this great enthusiasm and excitement and I think it grows as I get older and I don't know if that is the case for you but it's the case for me I'm a little shocked by it I'm a little surprised that I feel this way but I've mentioned it in past podcasts where or past rants rather where once again after all this time and you know some of the failures that I've had and lack of mainstream success I'm still kind of surprised at how excited I get about it and how every time I get a new mix I'm just so excited it's like oh it's like a new puzzle somebody just gave me a new puzzle and I get to sit down at the table and put the puzzle together that's what it's like for me it's like starting over as if it was my first thing I've ever done in audio so what if you're listening and you're thinking yeah fuck you uh I'm jaded and I don't have that enthusiasm and I'm bummed out and it's just work to me well I'm sorry if that's how you feel. And I hope that you can regain the enthusiasm as we head into the new year. Uh, It's 2022 as I record this at the end of the year in December and 23 is, is upon us. And I guess I can only say, try to mix it up a bit. Try to find the joy in it that others have because there's plenty to be excited about. There's, you know, from career standpoint, technology standpoint, community standpoint. I think that's one of the biggest ones for me, the community. Our Bay Area audio nerds thing that we do here, man, I just, without fail, unless there's a family obligation going on, I am there. I am so excited to see my fellow audio professionals and talk shop. And whether it's in a group or one-on-one, I'm just, I'm excited about what I'm doing, what other people are doing. 
But that's me. So if, once again, back to you, if you're not feeling it, dig deeper. Maybe it's not necessarily audio that's bumming you out, but maybe it's something else in your life. I know it sounds like I'm, I'm playing psychologist. You might as well lay down on the couch now and we can discuss your inner fears and, and worries. But no, seriously, um, if you're not feeling it, try to figure out why that is and if you can remedy that. And, you know, maybe it's uh, maybe it's a holdover from COVID, from, you know, being stuck in a space for a long time and not being able to go out and interact on a regular basis. So maybe you kind of got stuck in that um, COVID mindset where you're staying home and you're not going to talk to anybody or interact much. Try to get out. Now, I know that, you know, they say that COVID and some of these other sicknesses are on the rise as we head into winter. Obviously, take your precautions and do what's best for you. But at the same time, if you can reach out and uh, even meet one-on-one with your uh, fellow audio professionals and, you know, pick their brain, find out what makes them tick and find out if you can dig down deep and find that enthusiasm for audio. Now, if you're just done and you're tired and you just want to do something else, then I would encourage you to do something else. And maybe by letting it go, maybe you'll find out that you really do love it and you'll come back and you'll come back with an enthusiasm that is really unstoppable. Getting it out of your life for a little while, maybe maybe you learn to appreciate it. But I do know, you know, it gets rough sometimes and there's ups and downs and there's disappointments. I have definitely felt disappointments. Even this year, there's been a number of disappointments and I won't go into them, but you get past it and you move on to the next thing. So dig down deep, find that enthusiasm, stay with us if you can. And if not, get out for a bit and see if you want to come back in. Because, you know, the door is always open in audio, right? You can always come back in. So that's it. I hope all of you are doing well. And as we reach the end of the year, I hope you're formulating your plans for what is coming up for you in 2023. Boy, that sounds weird to say. 2023. Anyway, find the enthusiasm and stay active in audio in this next year. And uh, we'll see you out there. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, 
and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Dave Greenberg here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, man. Great to see you. You too, man. For the audience, we'll get into the your time in the Bay Area, but essentially you and I met at Keller & Cohen, which was Boomtown Studios. They were doing jingles. I we was, met before that. Did we meet before that? We were homies when you were working at Cutting Edge. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. I forget that. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll get into it that. Was in part, it was in part that that connection that that I sort of suggested you. Oh, you were the one that suggested me. There's so much you learn after the fact. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's get into you. Where did you grow up? I grew. I was born in Pasadena, California. I was born in Los Angeles, but raised. We bounced around a little bit after I was born. We lived in the Philippines for a couple of years. My brother was born in Philadelphia, and then from about I want to say second grade on up was here in Florida. My folks relocated here to Florida. And I uh, went, you know, through grade school and high school here and then left from there. Early on, what came first, music or audio? Music. Yeah, I played in bands in high school and also was sort of messing with music kind of experimentally and thinking of it as a thing to do in making films. And I was make, doing photography and filmmaking and stuff as well. And I bounced around. As a result, when I graduated high school, I bounced around. I went to art school up in Boston, which is how I ended up in Boston after a small stint at a photography school in Santa Barbara that no longer exists uh, huh. called Brooks. And was doing combinations of those things. I was even doing welded steel sculpture and making like these physical sound processors that had little speakers in them. There were chambers of hand-forged copper and steel that had like little wires and I used little RCA jacks or XLRs on them and connected stuff to them and did a variety of things that sort of combined sound and various forms of art and worked in film and did hmm. stuff while I was in art school in Boston. When did audio come onto your radar as, as a possibility for you to do professionally? <sighs> the long story short is that this is in some ways entirely a spite career. <laughs> <laughs> Like if, if you've seen Curb Your Enthusiasm and Latte Larry's, one of the bands that I was in in high school, and I, I skipped one of my stops along the way. I lived in Boulder, Colorado for about seven or eight months before moving out to Santa Barbara on that first go round after high school. My band was out there with me and we were playing shows in Denver and in Boulder and stuff. And we wanted to make what we'd call an EP now, like a five song demo. Mm -hmm. And this was 1986 or 87. It was 86. There was no Pro Tools then. We didn't have a home studio capable of getting results that we would think would present us well. So we hired a studio, as you do in the 1980s. The studio that we went to, the engineer there was such a dick. <laughs> he was such a dick. And I hated the experience. We got a decent tape out of it. It helped get us gigs. But I, I vowed in my head that I would never go into another recording studio without peer-like knowledge. And I kind of became obsessed with it. I'd always played with tape recorders and had fun recording stuff with whatever I could get my hands on. I had a little, I still have like an old Radio Shack mixer that we connected multiple cassette decks to and messed around with when I was a kid. But from that point on, I just decided I was going to learn everything I could about it. And I, I'll bounce ahead just a little bit because that was around the time I ended up in Boston. I started applying for gigs as a studio assistant and I picked the two top of the food chain places I could find. I ended up getting a gig as an assistant at both downtown recorders in Boston, which is like where the Pixies Doolittle was recorded and mm -hmm. roughly that same year and Blue Jay recorders out in Carlisle, which was a phenomenal recording studio. We were finishing up the first, I think Terrence Trent Darby record when I first started there and making coffee was my gateway to being able to put mics on stands, which I had a completely traditional upbringing as an assistant in recording studios while I was going to art school. Mm. 
And we worked on a ton of cool records at both studios, and I learned a lot from that experience. But basically, as I did that over the time that I was in art school, when I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area, I guess this is the long answer to your question about, you know, my path in audio. I didn't know what else to do for a job. I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area to go to graduate school at Mills College in, in music and sort of experimental music. And I didn't really know what else to do for a job to pay rent. And mm -hmm. so I ingratiated myself with Jeff Briss and the gang that were at Audio Images at the time. My dog is going to bark periodically because she has hypersensitive hearing and is paranoid about everything that happens outside this building. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of got to know Jeff and Sig and the guys from that are, became Cutting Edge when they were still at Audio Images, which was around the street <laughs> from the warehouse that I rented. I think this is an echo of my present that I lived in in South of Market, San Francisco on Shipley Street. For those of you that know the Bay Area, there's a little studio upstairs just in off the corner on Fifth Street. I was recording bands in there when I could. I got some gigs that were referred to me through the guys at Cutting Edge. I got to know Stephen Jarvis, who took me under his wing and was incredibly generous about sort of over-equipping me for projects that I would take on. And I did the usual thing. I don't know if it's the usual thing. It was my strategy. I found a band that I wanted to work with, and I brought them to one of the studios in the Bay Area. And basically, their entire budget went to the studio so that the studio was grateful to me for bringing them a project. I got to do something that sounded really good to get to the next project. And I got to make friends with studio owners. Hmm. This was how I kind of patched it through my years finishing up a graduate degree that I didn't know I would need for anything, but was just kind of on a path to do with jobs in audio. I, I worked at the Bay Area Video Coalition, which does that still exist? Bayvac, yeah. I'm not I'm not hundred percent sure if Bayvac still exists. I got a ton of work from them doing post and mixing stuff, especially uh, you know, like some documentaries came through there that we did and stuff around the gay and lesbian film festival time. There was always a bunch of short films that sort of came through and I stuff in post and working at my studio. I kind of patched together a bunch of stuff and made a living at it while I was a college student and eventually hooked up with the guys from Boomtown. And not to derail your conversation, but it's so funny you mentioned Stephen Jarvis because I was at a holiday party at 25th Street Studios in Oakland the other night and talked with Stephen like probably for 45 minutes straight about various things, including coming on this show as a possibility. Oh, he's great. Yeah. Yeah, really, really cool guy. Well, so Boomtown was a studio in, it was in San Rafael, was it not? No, it was in Sausalito. Sausalito, rather. Yeah. There it was right down the street. Boomtown started as one of the studios at the plant. Mark and Jeff, Je uh, Keller and Cohen, yeah. had a long-term lease on one of the rooms at the plant. And eventually, I don't know what the cause of their move was because it was before I joined them, but they rented a space about... I don't know, half a block down the alley from the plant. Hmm. But they called it Boomtown while it was still at the plant, but they moved it into this warehouse space that you got to see and know. Right. Now, Boomtown was interesting from my perspective. Probably the number one reason that was super interesting was working with Fred Catero, who just passed away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was, as a paid intern at that point, still pretty early in my travels as an audio person, I was like just enamored with with the whole process there, especially because of the sheer amount of talent that was coming through there uh -huh. of players. And of course, I looked up to you and Fred and was really enamored with how talented you guys were as well. But interesting place to work. Oh man, that was such a phenomenal catalyst of like getting engineering chops going because just to put it in perspective, Keller & Cohen was a, a jingle company in the heyday of jingle companies. They won Clio Awards for a lot of ad campaigns that everybody through the 80s and 90s grew up hearing. And the cool thing was, is they were kind of an old school, I mean, by modern standards, they're an old school approach to this stuff. They would, they would literally work banker's hours. We would show up in the morning. The engineers were the first ones in the building. We'd show up in the morning. We would get the fax that had the lyrics for the product that we were doing a jingle for that morning. And we would be soup to nuts. The guys would show up, then we'd have like a schedule where like, all right, we're going to do basics with drums, bass, and guitars. And then we've got singers coming, got a lead singer coming, then we'll have backing vocals come an hour later. We would be soup to nuts where they would have seen the script, 
written and jammed up a jingle around it. We'd be recording this while they're writing and we would be mixing while recording and we would have all the parts recorded changing mics along the way, sometimes with clients in the room, sometimes with ad agency people sitting on the couches behind us. And we'd be soup to nuts done with recording, mixing, and laying it off to video and various formats before lunch. And then we would have a beautiful lunch break. They'd bring in food. And then we would have another ad, you know, another client for something completely different. We might have a Hot Wheels commercial in the morning and a Dell computer thing with a drummer and a big band in the afternoon. And it would, again, be soup to nuts Record, mix, lay back to video, hand off the temporary tattoos, T-shirts, and baseball caps with the brand of the company on it (laughs) to the clients and send them out the door before 5 o'clock. And not only that, but there was times where I think that after lunch, after the like a big session like that, then sometimes we would transition to Mark doing voiceovers over ISDN. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we would sometimes do those. We would often do those at like 7 a.m. before the 9 o'clock session. That's right. That's right. Yeah. He, and it, this, that was also easy to do because a lot of the, he was doing Chevrolet back then and the agency was in Detroit or Chicago. Can't remember. And we'd have some where we'd be ISDNing to producers in New York. Now, let me stop you for a sec. For the younger audience, the older folks know what ISDN is. Could you explain in basic terms what ISDN was? Yeah, used sort of modified, I'm not a networking nerd, so I'm going to use terminology badly, but we basically had what I think were the equivalent of like three DSL lines, or maybe it was six. It was almost like having six separate phone lines that were data only. And this APTX box, APTX is still the codec that they use. The codec that they used is still in use like in these AirPods and stuff. It's the compression algorithm that they use that is still good. I think they've probably evolved it a bit, but... It was still data compressed. It wasn't perfect, but it sounded pretty good on the other end. And they would be recording it on the other end. We would also be recording safety to DAT. But basically, the process was you would figure out what studio you're connecting to, and you'd have to dial all six of these phone numbers to connect these two boxes, one here and one at the studio of the ad agency in Chicago or the ones in New York, or it might be a post-production house in Los Angeles. And then you'd be sending them digital audio. They would take an AES pipe out of their box and record it into their workstation or record it to a DAT. And then it would be handed off to the video editor to lay back to picture and edit and whatever they needed to do with it. And in the pre-internet age, it was really quite remarkable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it saved people from having to fly places and it gave guys like Mark the opportunity to do work for clients that were based in other cities. Yeah, and it was essentially like almost like a high-res MP3 mm-hmm. in terms of its its quality. Yep. Your memory of that place is much clearer. My time there was shorter than yours. <laughs> I bitch about it from time to time that I was I was going to go do a record in Portland. And I was like, told the manager, hey, I'm going to go do this record in Portland. I'll be back, blah, blah, blah. And I came home to a message on the, on the answering machine. We will no longer be needing your services. And oh, no. <laughs> I was just like, wow, okay, well, that's that. I guess I'm done yeah. there. So I worked there for the better part of the 90s. I mean, I was there, my wife at the time, and I moved back here to Florida not long after the September 11th attacks. I remember watching that happen on the TVs at Boomtown, and we were all freaked out. And eventually, after the second plane hit, we left. We went home, canceled the sessions for the day, and it was horrifying. But yeah, I mean, I I spent a long time in that place. And after Fred retired, I became the chief engineer there. And it was good times for you. I loved that place. Yeah. That was a great time overall. Super talented people, most definitely. So eventually, you left the Bay Area in 2001. Why did you leave? Well, I loved the Bay Area, and I still do, and my daughter moved there to go to college. But we left the Bay Area at the time in part because advertising had changed a bit. The dot-com bubble had burst, and some of our long-term clients at Boomtown had lost major clients. Things were a little slower at Boomtown. I was starting to do a lot more mix work and some mastering work at my place and at Boomtown. And I was doing projects at Boomtown and otherwise where I would literally be mixing by myself all day for a client in town and I would FedEx a reference CD across town. (laughs) God. (laughs) And that happened a lot. I was doing a bunch of projects that way. And I kind of got to a point where I was like, you know what? 
could have an FTP server and a FedEx account and be closer to my folks while they're still hmm. lucid and grandparents and start having kids. My wife and I had been married a few years at the time, and it was a move basically for family. I hmm. just wanted a, a better family life. I like this Bay Area. This St. Pete is a phenomenal little city in the Tampa Bay Area. And I always liked it when I'd visit my folks here. And we basically did it as an experiment. We had a, a house that we owned in Alameda after a long time living in that studio in South and Market. And we bought a house in Alameda and it was great, but we only lived there for like, I don't know, a year and a half before we were like, let's rent this house out and see what it's like to live in St. Pete. Mm. And maybe start having kids where the grandparents are nearby to be part of the kids' lives. It was about a year and a half, two years before the first kid arrived and we sold the house that was out there and bought a house here and found a house in a nice neighborhood here in St. Pete that had room for my studio on one end of it in a big, in a big room and a, my ex-wife's studio. She had a piano studio. She teaches piano and voice on the other end of the place. And we worked and lived in this house and had kids and it was good. Wow. And my kids grew up with their grandparents and highly involved in their lives. And it's been, I think, a remarkably valuable thing for both of them. Oh, yeah. And just a, a different, the way the Bay Area ended up moving in terms of cost of living here really, as we all know, got out of control. And I'm sure that mm -hmm. there you found a more comfortable living situation. Yeah, it, it was great for a while. I mean, it's gotten out of control here now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was it was for what we sold our house in Alameda for. We were able to get a house that was like almost triple the size, <laughs> or it seemed like it, Damn. and a rental property. When we were looking for a house, this is in fact somewhat related to my story. Is while looking for a house, accidentally found a fourplex that was available for a little too cheap by realtors. Like this was on the fax machine; it hasn't been listed yet, but this looks like a good deal. Would you have any interest in a in a fourplex? Like I'll take a look at it. Bought it before we bought our first house here. And hmm. it's now an income-producing thing for me. It's now something that's helping me put my kids through college. And yeah. it would, turned out to be a really good thing. It was a lot of pain. It's still a lot of pain. I'm waiting on a fence to be installed there that got blown down in a hurricane. But it's been a, a good thing. And for what we got out of selling out of the San Francisco Bay Area, the St. Pete, Tampa Bay Area, has been a lot more affordable again, up until recently. So moving at the time you did and landing in Florida, did you have a strategy for your audio career or did you? Yeah. Okay. The strategy so was keep a 415 area code phone number for a while, which I did for probably the first, I don't know, eight, nine, 10 years that I was here. Some people didn't know I had moved. One of the things that made me think maybe we could pull this off is A, the amount of stuff that I was doing where I was alone in the studio you know, which a lot of mixing and mastering is sort of predicated on work alone anyway. Yeah. But that workflow really came to be the primary workflow, I think, for most people. And it was really developing then. It was partly that. And it was also partly that I discovered that there was this weird airline that had direct flights, nonstop flights from the St. Pete Clearwater Airport, which is the little airport in this area, to SFO for like 175 bucks round trip. They went out of business. Oh, but yeah. I... My audio career plan was in some ways like, you know what? Every few weeks I could go out and spend a week out there, do recording, and then bring stuff back to mix. And the first year that we were here, I did a lot of that. I flew out on ATA Airlines a bunch in 2001 and 2002 probably. And then by the time Nina was born, didn't do as much of that and there was less demand for it. And I was really, because I was doing more mixing and mastering and stuff anyway, it, the need for me to go record stuff was starting to evaporate and I was getting more stuff that other people were recording and other people were mixing and it evolved from there. That's a great strategy though. It felt like a huge roll of the dice because I, again, I love the San Francisco Bay Area and hedged the bet by keeping the house out there as a rental. Just in case just in case, and just long enough to realize that, yeah, we like it here and we'll sell the house and do more with it, with that money. You know, some people might ask, well, why didn't you just move? But I mean, once again, with the internet, not at its full capacity, we'll say, as it is now, 
there's a perception that if you, you leave, your clients are going to be like, oh, well, Dave's gone, so we're going to go elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But, but if, you, yeah. if you kind of leave it a little vague and keep people thinking that you're there and available, they'll call you, you fly out for cheap, and that way you can kind of grow two different worlds at the same time. Yeah, I, I wasn't tricking anybody. Anybody that knew me knew what I was doing. Right. But for for the handful of things where like this person who was a bass player on a project that I worked on that has a record that they want to work on that just has my phone number that doesn't know me that well, they just call me and they say, hey, we're thinking about recording sometime next month. Have you got any availability? I don't even have to talk about where I'm coming from. I just show up. <laughs> right, exactly. There's no need to have that conversation. But, no, but for everybody that knew me well, they knew what I was doing and where I was and they supported and were encouraging about it. Yeah. So Sonopod is your mastering company. And I want to talk about mm-hmm. that. You know, you've been a tracking engineer, you've mixed and you've mastered. You, you kind of seem to gravitate more towards mastering. What mm-hmm. what drove that? <laughs> it's, a, it's a combination of things. I think it's partly that I'm a little tweaky by nature, that I am <laughs> I'm probably more diurnal. That's the vocabulary word of the day. That's the opposite of nocturnal. I've always been like, I I wake up at sunrise, I get tired and the sun goes down. I've always been kind of the daytime guy in a nighttime industry. Mm. And I I can count the number of times I was at like a a recording session at 2 a.m. where I felt like the truck driver that hasn't taken a rest break in a long while. You'd sort of dozing off and start hallucinating things in the studio (laughs) because you're so tired. (laughs) I always liked banker's hours and it made it easier for me because other people didn't want to show up to the studio. It made it easier for me to start getting head starts on mixes before anybody would show up for a session. Yeah. And in my nature of being somewhat tweaky, I, I like equalizers. That's another reason, but I, I don't know. I just always have gravitated towards sort of messing with recordings and working with something that has already been recorded and manipulating sounds. And that kind of got me a little bit more juiced up about mixing and and by the same token about mastering. I, I think the first project that I really ever did as a mastering engineer was in the late 1980s when I was still a student in Boston. Mm. And it was just something that I kind of got asked to do occasionally. And it wasn't something that I necessarily set out to do, but I, it was something that I'd get asked to do more periodically. And when I was doing more mixing, it was one of those things like, hey, can you master this record too? It was like, you know, there were some times I would say, no, nah, you should send this off to so-and-so. And other times I was like, yeah, I'll do it. And whether that was for the economy of a slow month or just because I liked being immersed in the record and thought I could do a good job with it, mm-hmm. I did that. And then people would, I, I would start getting more and more projects where pe- that was what people were asking me to do specifically just that. And it kind of evolved as a response to what I was being asked to do for work. And I kind of put the shingle out there more officially as a mastering studio because I think that's the focus I kind of wanted to stick with. And Mm -hmm. I think people prefer it that way. I still, I'm working on a mixing project right now. I'm mixing something for a band in Los Angeles. And Again, it's like one of those things that they know I also do mixing. I don't really put it on the website. Yeah. But I I still get projects to mix periodically, and I love being immersed in mixing. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. 
There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Did you feel compelled to specialize publicly? A little bit. I think there was and still is some stigma against people who do mixing and mastering. And I for sure cringe every time I hear somebody in their 20s say mixing and mastering as if it's a hyphenated word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I've in some ways felt compelled to do the same and hang the shingle as mixing, stereo and Atmos mixing, but people still call me to master. And it's like, what are you going to do? You're going to turn them down? Not if you like it. <laughs> and, you know, and I like it, but, yeah. but I've seen a lot of people out there who do have just way too many slashes between all their job roles. And you're just like, well, what do you not do? Mm. Mixer, producer, mastering, pizza maker. Yeah. Sometimes I th I've seen it get out of hand, but. I spent a lot of plates in my life, but in terms of my focus, in terms of what I put out there for people as my job in audio, I put it out. I'm a mastering engineer and that's the bulk of what I do. Yeah. And I love it. Tell me about how your mastering business has grown since you've been in Florida or ebbed and flowed. Yeah. It, I mean, it definitely has had its ebbs and flows and the, the recession sucked. <laughs> yeah. And that house that I had bought was great for a while. It really allowed me to kind of combine overheads in one place. Mm-hmm. But the entire time that I've been here, especially the early years that I was here, real estate was cheap here compared to other parts of the country and certainly compared to the San Francisco Bay Area. I had always wanted to find a building to build a proper mastering studio in. And it's one of those things that I've kind of been on a quest anytime I thought I was in the range of the kind of steady work that would support it. And as I mentioned, that fourplex that I had was, and still have, was always one of those things that I thought I could maybe leverage to try to find some kind of commercial space because I wanted to build a proper mastering studio and I didn't want to do it in a place that I was leasing. I've heard enough stories from people over the years and friends with studios where somebody jacked up their rent a long way and they had to find a whole other place. I wanted to build something out and know that it was my building and that if I wanted to do something different with it, I could do something different with it, but I wasn't going to get kicked out. I wasn't going to get priced out. When I lived in San Francisco, I kind of learned this lesson as the dot-com bubble was inflating. Mm -hmm. My landlord, I was in a warehouse building on Shipley Street, and my landlord owned a bunch of places around there, including Linda Perry's building across the street from me. And he started pricing everybody out, as did everybody else. He accidentally wrote me up on a residential lease, so I was protected by rent control. <laughs> <laughs> and my rent couldn't go up more than the city said that it could. Right. In all of the other places that he had, he was jacking rent up and people were moving out and he was filling it. And there was a, there was a place two doors down from me that was smaller than my 1,800-square-foot space that was renting for like $6,500 a month, which at the time seemed unbelievable. And I was paying like thirteen or $1,400 a month for more space. Wow. When the time came, he paid for me to leave that place. He actually offered me some money, which is part of how I got a house in Alameda. He gave me enough cash to help fuel the down payment on that house. But as much as that was good for me, it also made me paranoid about ever building something that I cared about the build out of in a, in a space that somebody else owned. Yeah. So I spent a long time looking for a place here. And I found this building right near the central corridor of this town. It's like in the downtown corridor. I, after looking at a bunch of oddballs and weird buildings, and I took this realtor that I knew from the house that I had bought with my ex. And I took him out for beers just to sort of show him some of these oddball buildings that I found to see what he thought about them. I said, I'm looking for a commercial space to do this, this, and this. And I described to him, you know, the kind of space needs that I had, something with high ceilings. My plan was to build a Northward studio in it. Thomas Juanjohn is a longtime friend, and I hired him and plans for Northward space. Anyway, 
the realtor and I were talking and he said, well, you know, there's this building up off of 24th Street that I had a deal in place for. The owners are really elderly and live in North Carolina. They have a son-in-law that hates managing it. And there's a sort of a squatter in the building. And I said, well, how much is it? And he said, uh, I think the contract we had six months ago was $100,000. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> and I knew the building he was talking about. I'd driven by it a bunch of times thinking that's kind of an interesting building. It's a 2,500-square-foot building on a corner of a major thoroughfare in downtown St. Pete. And I basically, long story short of this, I got in an offer on it, and I got the place for a little less than $100,000. <laughs> oh, my God. Under, under six figures. Yes, under six figures. I had to get the squatter out of there. There was a junk hoarder guy. The, the building, I had to buy it essentially uninspected. If you open the door to it, it looked like a snowdrift of trash. Like you couldn't walk in. It was trash up to the ceiling. There was an impression of the doorknob in the trash as you close the door. You know how Google satellite images, you can go back to earlier years. For a while there, it was still showing the satellite images of this building from before where you could see all the trash strewn around the building in the yard. It was horrific. Deep inside this place, there were a bunch of refrigerators that had lost power and were full of rotting food and the smell. Oh. You could smell it for like a whole city block around the building as we were cleaning it out. It was incredible. We got the building cleaned out. And while we were doing the clean out and getting things ready, I had thought that this would be maybe the kind of building we could build northward rooms in. Paid Thomas to design a couple of rooms, hired an architect. At some point in the analysis of this place, we found out that it was not really the concrete building that it looked like it was. It was a concrete wall facing the main street and then a bunch of two-by-fours that were 100 years old with lath and plaster or lath and stucco uh. wrapped around the building. And it's the kind of building you don't want to build a $200,000 room inside. Right. <laughs> so I hired an architect to design a new building to take its place that was going to be... My studio's on the ground floor, a little bit of retail up on the street corner, because I don't need street visibility for what I do, and a pair of two-bedroom apartments upstairs. And we called this The Shell. We sort of designed this as a bare-bones concrete building that was going to replace the, the footprint of the other building, but be two stories now and have the apartments upstairs to be rental income to offset the cost of the building and keeping the studio in and that it was no longer a less-than-six-figure building. Yeah. And we hired this architect, did a feasibility study. It was supposed to be that this shell was going to be somewhere around $500,000 to build. But the income that it was going to make was going to more than pay for that and cover the nut on the studio. And that seemed like a good financial plan. Yeah. By the time we got through all of the plans and going through the city and a, a permitting and stuff and started getting bids for construction, they were a million dollars over budget. This architect screwed me. <laughs> All the plans for this building were 1.7, 1.9, and 2.1 million before the acoustic build out. It was devastating. So their plans of what to build would add up to over a million. A million to, dollars to build more than than we had planned and what we had gotten in the feasibility study, and that was partly because it took a couple of years to get to that point. It was partly because the city started really blowing up, and it was also partly that this architect over designed it. Even when we tried to sort of dumb some things down and change some things and value engineer it down to some, we couldn't get it cheap enough to make the numbers work. So there I was with plans for some northward rooms and a cool building that needed to be torn down to make room for a new building and absolutely no financial equation where that worked out well. So I punted and decided that it was actually it was looking like it was going to be like 400 and something dollars a square foot, like $480 a square foot to build this shell. And there was still commercial real estate in this town for like 100 bucks a square foot for sale, just existing buildings. So I decided I was going to go on a quest for a building with a 14-foot clearance inside so that I could use the exact same plans that Thomas made and fit them in there. And... I looked at every place that had a for sale sign on it, and I started just looking in public records at any place that looked tall enough, that looked like the right kind of building in a decent spot. And there was this building, the one that I'm talking to you from right now, that I had seen a bunch of times on walks. It was not far from where I lived. It was in a weird pocket, like near railroad tracks, but you know, where it used to be an industrial neighborhood, it was now mostly residential. So it's like this little pocket of warehouses surrounded by homes. Hmm. 
And this was like one of the warehouses, you know, there are contractors, there's a bunch of other businesses around me here, but this building never had a sign on it. It was painted dark color on the outside. It had nice plants and a little patio fenced in on the outside. I'm like, this is somebody's studio. Somebody likes this place. It's not a public shingle. They don't have business hours. This is somebody's studio. So I looked up the owners and they were professional photographers. This was a food photography studio, which is why I think I showed you when we were walking around before we started uh, yeah. recording. It has this massive kitchen and that commercial fridge. They were food photographers. They did like magazine ads and TV commercials and stuff with food. And I wrote them a letter. I sent, I found their website and sent them an email, said, look, you probably get offers like this all the time. We're probably sick of it, but I have been on a building search for a long time. Here's me, here's my website. This is what I do. If you have any thought, if this happens to be good timing, if you're thinking about selling your building, just let me know. If not, your business looks really cool. I love the photography you do. Congratulations. Have a good one. I got a call that afternoon. Holy crap. Them. They said, it is so funny that you chose today to send that email. I said, we were just talking about our retirement plans. And I basically met them. They're super cool. They loved that their building was going to stay in the arts. In some way, they had gotten offers from people that were looking to turn it into like a you know car storage building or some place to hide RVs and boats and stuff. <laughs> And they were just happy that it was going to stay in the arts. And we worked out a deal that seemed like a fair price based on the market at that time. We just went into a, a real estate attorney's office and signed a contract and I bought the place. But you kept the other place where the hoarder was. I kept the other place where the hoarder was. And instead of selling it, which is what I thought I was going to do, I know this, we're way off the path of audio, but it is about studios. I ended up gutting that place and I found a contractor that I liked and completely gutted and just made that a white box. We basically tore it down to the studs, leveled the floors, put new concrete down and on half of it, fixed the roof up, painted new hurricane windows, made it a brand new white box because I figured out that if I lease that amount of space in the location that it was, it could pay the nut on both buildings. Oh, man. And, and that is what has happened. Oh. So there, there's a bagel bakery in there now. Oh, that's fantastic. And it's a beloved city institution here, and they're doing great. Their business is kicking ass, and their rent is basically almost entirely paying for both buildings. That is amazing. This is a valuable lesson. I've brought it up on the show before. Other people have brought it up. But if you're going to build a studio, owning the building is mm -hmm. really the ideal way to go and insulate yourself from landlords who are tempted by changes in, in the market, changes in, in the, the, you know, the financial climate, as did happen in San Francisco during the dot-com bubble. Because I remember, you know, oh, yeah. building owners were jacking up the rent everywhere. Rehearsal studios were falling prey to this. So yeah. this is a great, great lesson. Not only a great financial lesson, but a great studio lesson. Yeah, I don't know that I could have done it any other way. Or I'd be hustling a lot harder. I'd be a lot leaner on the overhead, any form of building out a studio is stress-inducing. And the fact that I now somehow, it feels like I'm faking adulthood somehow, like somebody's going to come and catch me. Like I have three properties. Well, so, okay, so you got the one you're in, you got the white building where the bagel place is at. Do you still have the fourplex? I do. Okay, okay. And the ha I, I'm assuming, you know, not to get into your private business, but during the divorce... <laughs> She, yeah. she got the house, right? She gets the house. Yeah. She, it's her piano studio. She's got that house. Okay. She's working out of that. Yeah. It's been good. And you're living in this space that you're at now, which is a combination of your studio. You've got some uh -huh. bedrooms there for the kids when they visit because you've, they're essentially adults as we discussed before we started recording. Yeah. So the business itself of mastering, do you feel like you're at a good spot with the business? Yeah. Yeah, things are going pretty nicely. I have a fairly steady flow of stuff. Melissa's, Melissa Harris Chambers is the other engineer that works here. She's been going like gangbusters lately. She's working on a bunch of really cool stuff as well. And we're staying busy here. The build out of the Northward rooms has not happened. <laughs> now, you got to explain that to me. The term is Northwood? Northward. Thomas Schwanjohn. Okay. Yeah. I know nothing I think, of this. Oh, man. You should just look up. Oh, man, Thomas is the best. He, he might be the best living acoustician on earth. Really? In fact, in case he hears this, he is, okay. by all means. The he really is. He's, he's designed Sterling's new rooms. He's designed 
We were visiting L.A. at the NAMM show or AES or something when he was tuning the speakers that were installed in the Skrillex studio hmm. in Los Angeles, which is phenomenal. It has glass sidewalls. He calls them um, front-to-back rooms. But if you haven't seen Thomas's rooms, you need to check them out. If you go to, I think, northwardstudios.com, I think is his site. He's a phenomenal designer, and the, the rooms that he's designed for me are something that I do want to build someday, but not in the current construction cost climate and not with a kid paying out-of-state tuition at UC Berkeley. <laughs> Should have kept that house in Alameda. that's okay it all worked out well were you super tempted to just sell that other building that is now the bagel building i was tempted but i i wanted to sort of see if i could have cake and eat it too and if the income from it would sort of make sense from a cash flow standpoint just really sort of sussed out i i had to figure what it would cost to sort of make it a white box like i said and actually did paint it white that's it's an expression, but I did paint the building white. <laughs> right, right. But it's it's essentially making it clean and neutral so yep. that anybody can come and do their special thing there. Yeah, it's, it's a nice space. It had polished concrete floors, spiral, you know, exposed ductwork and good windows and... A blank, yeah. blank slate. A blank slate for any business. We thought maybe we might have two different businesses in there, maybe a hair salon on one side and something else. Wasn't sure, but the bagel bakery took over the whole building and they love it and we love it. Yeah. And for those that are keeping up here with the real estate conversation, it's not that you just buy these a building like this and it, its value is its value. It grows in value over time. Yep. Yeah, your tenants are helping you build equity while you have it. And ideally, they're also providing cash flow. I spent the first 10 years of owning that little fourplex where I wasn't really cash flowing. I had to, I did all the work there myself. I had to do everything. And I was just happy that the rental income was building the equity and it was helping pay down the mortgage. Yeah. Things are better with that now, especially as the rental market has heated up and it's helped. So I always ask the guests on the show about their outlook and philosophies on money and finances. And because in the profession of audio, we traditionally are not the best always at money management. Mm -hmm. How would you rate yourself? I would rate myself as an absolute fake it till you make it work in progress. Mm. <laughs> this is something, I went to art school. Yeah. I suffer at every year end doing the bookkeeping for the studio and for the rental places. I feel like I am a complete fraud when it comes for money and yet I'm figuring it out and making it work and I'm learning things along the way and I've learned hard lessons about what business decisions are smart to make, like when you should buy that cool piece of gear and when you should say, you know what, it's just not, it's not, I'm not going to make enough with it to make sense of that until this, this, and this happens or until this thing is paid off or until this situation changes. And I've learned a lot of hard lessons about bookkeeping and being organized with money. And it's not something that came easily. I, like I said, I'm an art school guy. My parents weren't business people. Mm-hmm. I learned through failure and expensive advice from accountants and self-teaching some bookkeeping and struggling with QuickBooks and screwing things up and then learning from mistakes. Yeah. So you're at a good spot now, it's, though it seems, in terms of you live in a great place and that you like and you have a couple buildings and you're not freaking out about taking every single gig that comes through the door, it seems like. No, I, I mean, there are some months that I'll be a little bit more freaked out about it than others, but I'm basically, I'm doing enough to make a living, take care of my kids, and I enjoy the work. I mm -hmm. like every project that comes through. It's, it's, you know, mastering is an interesting point in the production line in which styles, you, you get to spend more time working in different styles, different genres, different outlooks on what music sounds like, on what audio sounds like, because it's not like mixing where you spend weeks immersed in one project or in long hours. It's, you know, you work on a song and you're done within 45 minutes maybe. Mm -hmm. And you move on to the next thing. If you're doing a single, if you do, if I have, you know, five singles in a day, I've got five completely different styles of music to hear, to listen to, to work on, to learn from, to kind of keep fresh perspective. It's exciting. Now with the building that you have now, 
Have you ever been tempted to set up a tracking studio? Not really. Mm. For a couple of reasons. I mean, I, I do have local clients here. I get clients from all over the planet, though. I, so it's not like I'm exclusively a local shingle, but I wouldn't necessarily want to be competitive with some of the people locally that do send me work. That's one reason. Another reason is I like banker's hours. <laughs> Once again, we're back to banker's hours, yeah. And if you get into tracking, you're going to be tracking late. Yep. And as much as I have enjoyed it, and I have loved recording and tracking, I haven't missed it for a long time. Mm. I really like kind of working on the back end of things. Makes sense. I'll put a link in the show notes to the website, which is sonopod.com. And those of you listening, if you want to hire Dave for mastering, obviously, look him up. By all means. I can vouch for him. He's a, he's a good dude. I do want to ask you this, as somebody who has been around the block a few times in the world of audio, there's a lot of newbies coming up and there's a lot of, a lot of people wanting to get into the various aspects of recording and, and uh, end of the business. But if you could not necessarily give advice particular to mastering, but just the overall broad scope of audio, what would you tell somebody, like if your kid came to you and said, one of the kids came and said, hey dad, I want to get into audio what would you tell them about survival and business and long-term strategy? Hmm. You have to assume it's slow growth. This is a slow growth thing because word of mouth is sustenance. And one project leads to others. There's, there's family, I could trace back a lot of my long-term clients and even incoming clients to like these, like it's almost like a genealogy of stuff that I've worked on before. And actually that would be kind of fun to map out. That would be. Yeah. But one of the things that I think a lot of people that are early on in their careers have a hard time with is figuring out how to value what they do and how to establish the kind of value for, for what they're doing that, that turns into sustainable income. And part of that is figuring out what it should be. And I don't know if this is advice I'd give my kid because my, I'd give my kid advice to just do as much as possible because nothing, nothing replaces like lots of experience and perfectionism is the opposite of growth in a lot of cases. I, mm. I've seen a lot of people that are really good. You've probably seen this too. A lot of people who are really good musically or really talented in this, and they fuss and spend excessive time. And then there's people who are just belching, barfing stuff into the world, putting things out there with reckless abandon, and they get better because they do more. Mm -hmm. So do as much as possible. But with the caveat that a lot of people starting out are just putting themselves out there doing shit for free left and right. And I think that that is harmful to them and to the industry in ways that I, I have a simple solution for. And that simple solution is figure out what your value should be. Figure out like, all right, I'm a rookie. Here's some other guy that's out there that has a, a small studio. He's got similar software to what I have, the similar cheap monitors and plugins and stuff. And he's got a rate card on his website. He's doing this stuff for 150 bucks a song to mix. Mm -hmm. I'm making numbers up here. If you think that you're on par with $150 a song guy and you're trying to get early work, I think your job is to sort of put $150 a song on your invoice on the projects that you're going to do for free and then give them a discount to free so that they're getting something. Document a discount on an invoice. It's so much better if, if you're supposed to be charging $500 for the thing you're doing and the project says, oh, I can only afford 275 bucks. You give them a discount that gets it to 275 bucks with $500 on the invoice so that you're establishing that you're the guy that costs $500 that they got a good deal on. You're both giving them a deal and establishing a proper value for yourself at the same time. And that is much better than doing things for free and just being the cheap person. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And it's something that I've, I've talked about, about if you're going to give a break, make sure you document that break so they know. Mm -hmm. I love that. Love that advice. That's brilliant. Well, fantastic, Dave. It's really great to see you. And I'm glad that we could keep the schedule and make sure that you're, uh, you're the second to the last show at the end of the year here in 2022. Nice. So I'm a closer. That's the mastering stage. You're a closer. That's <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. Well, uh, I'll let you go, but you take care and thanks so much. You do the same, Matt. Take care. Okay. 
Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Dave Greenberg. Here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Remember, if you want to help out the show because you love the show, I assume if you've gotten this far, you love the show. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. Maybe write something nice if they give you that opportunity. Either way, I'd be deeply appreciative and that would greatly help the show. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magical voice of Mr. Chuck Smith there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn, or feel free to send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>